is there such thing as being too patient? I have been in the ministry for just over a year. I know, time flies. And I have yet to have anyone walk into my office and go, shucks, I really wish my husband were less patient with other people. Oh man, my wife is too patient with me. Oh, my parents are just way too patient with me. And no, that's not an issue that we see very much in life. We look at somebody and say that they're too patient. If anything, usually the problem is that we're not patient enough, right? Take, for example, if we're looking for an example of, of being too patient, maybe we find it in the business world. Do we all know what Blockbuster is? Blockbuster might have been a little too patient. Blockbuster was this lovely place that we all went, especially if, I guess, if you're younger than me, maybe you don't know exactly what Blockbuster is, but we would go, and on Friday night, we would go grab a movie, and we would bring it home, and we would put it in the DVD player or even the VHS player, and that was how we watched our movies with pizza. But Blockbuster was a little too patient. They didn't adapt. They, they, they didn't want to get ahead on the technology. They stood back, and they said, you know what? We want to wait out any any type of phase that might come and go, we're just going to stand pat and do what we do best. And then a little thing called Netflix came in and pretty much wiped Blockbuster off the face of the earth. So maybe it is possible to be too patient. And I ask you today, brothers and sisters, can God be too patient? Here, the story that Jesus tells us today is he, he dives us into a parable. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. This was a very normal arrangement of the day. He built this big beautiful vineyard and it had all the trappings it had a watchtower and it had a wine press and it was it was to the nines it was perfect and, and then he he finds some people and he says I'm gonna, I'm gonna lease it to you i'm gonna let you use that land and all you have to do is give me some of the fruit of your crops and you would think this is a very normal agreement why why won't you take them up on this offer that is a perfect vineyard how would you as a tenant not want to use it and so they enter into this agreement that he is going to come at some point and expect to, to receive his share of the crop. But listen what happens. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. This almost starts to feel like a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me situation. And maybe you're reading this, this section of scripture and you're thinking to yourself, what are you doing? And you could really think about that in two ways. First, you look at the, the tenants, the people that are leasing the land, and you go, what are you doing? You are behaving like depraved, vile animals. Not only did you, you refuse to pay, 
You could have just taken those servants and sent them back the other way and said, we're not going to pay. But you went a step further. You killed them. And then when more came to, to talk to you, you killed them too. You go, what are you doing? How could you be so, so awful, so malicious to the people that that landowner had sent to you? You start to realize that it's less about their feelings towards those people and more about their feelings towards the landowner. But then there's the second, what are you doing moment? And that's the feeling we have when we see what the landowner's doing here. You send that first group of servants, and again, not only do they refuse to pay, but they actually kill those servants. You would think, okay, that's it. You are going to send a bunch of men with, with clubs and swords, and you are going to wipe those people off the face of the earth for what they had done to you and to your people. But instead, he goes, no, 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 I'm just going to send more. And those people go and, and, and they do the exact same thing. And you start to wonder, what are you doing? Why would you just keep sending servants and servants? And then, at the end of all this, you send your, your son? Why on earth would you ever think to send your son into that situation? It is like taking your keys to the 2004 Toyota Camry, flipping them to your 16-year-old son, and through all sorts of acts of irresponsibility, he winds up getting the thing totaled. And then he comes home, and you go, don't worry, here are the keys to my brand new Tesla. It is that crazy that he would go from, from these servants that maybe he cares about, maybe he doesn't care too much about, all the way to, to, to sending his son, who you are almost sure you know exactly how it's going to go. You would say, stop sending them. Stop giving these people chances. It's cool that Jesus tells the story this way because it gives us this, this really neat parallel. There's a, a parallel here between what's going on in this story and the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to his Old Testament people. And what did those people do? Some of them they listened to, but other ones... They rejected. You think of the prophet Elijah who, who God sent to his people and eventually Elijah threw his hands up and said, none of these people believe me. They, they hate me and they want to kill me too. Why would you do this to me, Lord? Yes, the people just reject and reject and reject to the point that when you hear about Isaiah and Jeremiah from other sources, we hear that, that they might have been killed for their teachings. Zechariah, killed. Just a few short months or years ago, John the Baptist was sent to the people to tell them to repent of their sins, to turn from their ways and live. And what happened to John the Baptist? Killed. God had sent prophet after prophet to these people, to his people of Israel, to the chief priests and elders, the ones that Jesus is talking to today. And they rejected them. They dug their heels in and yes, they even killed them. So much to the point that Jesus is on record of saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. And yet God keeps sending them. He keeps sending them and, and exactly what happens in the parable is what happens in real life as well. But when the 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. The chief priests and the elders at this point still didn't really realize that Jesus was talking about them. They, he still thought they were, he was telling some type of story that had some other meaning for the people, but the reality was he was sort of telling them a, a story to get them to realize something about themselves. And it sort of made me think of those blind comparisons that you see on TV when you're, especially when you're watching sports, is they'll put like a baseball player and they'll put statistics up next to another set of statistics and they won't put the name on it. They'll just expect you to guess who that is and, and maybe compare the two. And they're sort of trying to get you to be surprised by one set of statistics versus the others. That's what Jesus is doing. He, he lays out this, this situation and he gets the people to say, those are wicked, wretched human beings. And just a few verses later, they realize that he's talking about them. I sort of wonder what I would think if my blind sin statistics were put up in front of me. Not with my little name at the top, but instead just put right there in my face. If God took all of the sins of maybe, let's say, 2023 and, and listed them out in front of me, would I say, oh, that's not that big of a deal? Or would my mouth fall to the floor and, and point at those statistics and go, whoever that is, that is a wicked, wretched man. Probably that one. The one that looks at, at my life and sees my shortcomings before the Lord. Yes, we all find ourselves in that, that exact same situation. Where by God's grace, we, unlike the Pharisees, have not completely outright, out and out rejected him and sent him away from us. But that doesn't mean that we're still not testing the patience of God. We text the patience of God as we, we give in to sin each and every day. So often the same sins over and over and over again. And oftentimes the justification, the mantra for us testing the patience of God in our lives is four words that we whisper to ourselves over and over and over again in our heads. No, not a big deal. And that's what tests the patience of God. When we look at our sinful life and we say, you know what, this isn't a big deal. It, sh it shouldn't be a big deal before God because it's not a big deal to me. And, and we expect God, God, you've got to be patient with me for another day. God, you've got to be patient with me for another day, another day, another day. At a certain point, won't we look at God the same way that that we look at that landowner and go, you know what? Why don't you just give up? Why would you keep sending prophets? Why would you keep sending Jesus? Why would you send pastors and teachers and friends and relatives to try to pluck us out of our sins if you know that over and over and over again we are going to find ourselves right back in the same place? God, why are you bearing with us? Why, why are you so patient? For that, 
we have to keep reading. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's why. Because the people that Jesus was talking to that day were the ones that were eventually going to kill him that week. And even though we look at that action, that action of killing Jesus, and we go, how could you? How dare you? This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed with my eyes. Jesus tells us exactly what's happening there. No, not defeat of God's kingdom. Instead, the cornerstone is being laid. And on that cornerstone, on that death and resurrection of Jesus is where we base our lives, our eternities, everything that we hope for, everything that we cling to, every type of peace that we have in our life. That is what Jesus is doing there. He is laying that cornerstone by giving himself on the cross so that you and I can see the very patience of God in action. As he looks at sinners like you and me and says, I will wait another day for you. I will wait another day for you and another day for you because I love you. We see God's patience at its absolute finest in Christ. When you almost see him take a deep breath with us and go, let's try this again. And again. And again. That, dear brothers and sisters, is grace. And what a, what a fantastically ironic thing that when Jesus is being laid down as the cornerstone of faith, salvation, and his church, he actually uses the rebellion of the people in front of him that day to do it. Our God is patient with us in a way that we couldn't even possibly comprehend. I wish I could pay, point to the patience of a father or a mother, of a husband, of a wife, of an employer, of a friend, and be able to find some type of comparison for you, but I just can't. There is no patience known on earth like the patience of our God, who every time we dig our heels in a little deeper, he pulls harder who doesn't turn his back on us when the going gets rough, but instead brings to us people and circumstances in our lives to bring us back to him. This is extraordinary patience, that even though we might not be killing prophets, but maybe just rejecting them, God continues to send people into our lives to bring us back. This is what God means when he says, I am slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. It means not giving up after the first try, the second try, the fifth try, or the 50th try. The patience of our God is what sent Jesus to the cross so that that patience might be continued. So that he could continue to bear with us, knowing that, that our sins of today are likely to be our sins of tomorrow and the next day. But the patience of our Lord remains. But maybe... Maybe we make a note on that, especially as Jesus finishes out. He ends with a little bit of a warning. He says, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. 
Let's not take God's patience for granted. In life, it feels as if the patience of God is just limitless because we haven't found the end of it. But I I encourage you, brothers and sisters, let's not make our life goal to find the limits of God's patience. Let's not try our absolute hardest to see how far we can poke and prod our Lord Jesus. Instead, instead let's, let's die to sin every day. Let's be reminded of our baptism as God, as God showed that ultimate patience with us by bringing, bringing us as his children into the family of believers, even though he knew he was bringing a very troubled child that was going to tr- crash the Toyota Camry of faith over and over and over again. Let's not push him to his limits. Let's look at the forgiveness, the cornerstone that is built in Christ, and find our value, our worth, and yes, even our patience with others right there. This might be an odd time to, to sit next to your spouse in church, but, but have you ever thought who shows more patience in your relationship? Have you ever really thought about that? You don't have to make eye contact with the person sitting next to you. Have you really given thought as to who is being forced to show more patience? It's probably a dangerous thought to have in the first place, isn't it? Because every time that we compare that to the patience of God, we are going to find ourselves woefully short. Because the patience of God knows no bounds. He's a God who, when it feels like you should be out of chances hands you one more. The patience of God is shocking. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, be shocked by it every single day. Amen.